philosophers like Descartes and Montaigne put on the importance of putting yourself in touch with with the unfamiliar, with the other, and how this is really good for our minds, that it helps us, that broaden our souls. And I think that that can affect decisions we make when we travel. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with philosophy professor Emily Thomas, whose book, The Meaning of Travel, explores the influence of travel on philosophy, as well as the influence of philosophy on travelers and travel trends, such as mountaineering and beach tourism. You might recall I've explored philosophical themes in previous episodes of this podcast, including the ways philosophy can be used for self-improvement, as I discussed in my interviews with people like Eric Weiner and Monica McCarthy. In today's episode, I talk with Emily Thomas about how the history of philosophy was influenced by travel literature and how philosophy was combined with travel literature to create some of the earliest types of science fiction. We talk about the difference between simple beauty and the broader concept of the sublime and the way maps can misrepresent the world even as they aim to depict the world. We talk about why travel and travel writing has usually been gendered male and how that has affected the way women are perceived when they travel. We begin by talking about why the philosophy of travel isn't a very common academic pursuit and why Emily decided to write a book about it. Let's listen in. I've always considered that travel and philosophy go hand in hand because it feels like philosophy can inspire travel. Um, but one thing that you point out at the beginning of your book is that philosophy and travel are not necessarily paired together in an academic sense. Um, and so how did you discover this and why did you decide to write a book about the relationship between philosophy and travel? The easy answer is that I have been obsessed with both independently throughout my adult life. Hmm. Um, and there came a point where I suddenly realized, why on earth aren't I looking for philosophical issues in travel? Like, but there must be some. Um, so I started doing this research and I found really quickly, as you say, that philosophy of travel is not a recognized academic part of philosophy. But nonetheless, it, there is loads to say about it. Lots of philosophers have thought really hard about travel and philosophy has affected travel. Travel has affected philosophy throughout history. And writing the book then seemed easy. I got to put two different things that I love together. And was there a, a particular approach that went into it? Was, was it a lot of time in the library or a lot of time on the road or both? A lot of time in the library was definitely first and foremost. Uh -huh. Because... Um, no, so what you do have in philosophy of travel are little pockets where people have written about particular philosophical issues. So, for example, you can find people who have thought about the influence of travel books on the philosophy of John Locke. Um, you can find people who've thought about the ethics of traveling in an era of climate change. But what you can't find is studies that put all of these different things together to kind of create any kind of roadmap to the philosophy of travel. So initially, it was a lot of time in the library, just reading about these different travel philosophy interactions. And then very slowly, I had to create the roadmap 
like figure out how I was going to put all these different things together. And, and as you can see in the book, I ended up doing so historically. So I start from the 16th century age of discovery and then very slowly work my way forward. What I did not expect was that this research would become tied up with a trip I took to Alaska around the time I was thinking and starting to write about these things. Um, and somehow this trip to Alaska made its way into the book in this unexpected way from my perspective. Yeah, it's sort of a narrative framing device. And yeah. actually, we can sort of thread these things together in this conversation because, um, you know, you do talk talk about Locke or, or Francis Bacon or Margaret Cavendish in different uh, circumstances to sort of unpack how philosophy and travel are related or or can be related. I think your first chapter is entitled something along the lines of why should philosophers care about travel? So I'll pose that question to you. Why should philosophers care about travel? Um, I think we should care about travel for two reasons. I think one is that philosophy and travel actually have a lot in common. So I don't think there are many activities that humans do and um, where we are literally trying to map out things that we don't already know. So let me try and explain what I mean by that. So um, say that I'm a biologist and I'm trying to figure out a range of plant species. Um, I, I know that there's this range of plant species out there and I go to study them to increase our knowledge. But what I think philosophy and travel tries to do is figure out the stuff that we don't yet know we don't know about. Hmm. Um, so if you look uh, into like a distant part of the ocean, we have no idea what's there at all. We don't even know what we're supposed to be studying. And I think that travel, it, when it's about exploration, can really be about finding these new pockets of unknown thought. And philosophy does exactly the same. So questions like, um, what is time or what is goodness? These questions haven't been around forever. Someone had to ask them for the very first time. And when they did, they were mapping out a whole new region of unknown stuff. So I think um, one reason philosophy should care about travel um, because it does this kind of thing. Um, it's also looking to the stuff that humans don't know anything about. Um, and the other reason, really pragmatically, is because travel has had a huge impact on philosophy. Like we philosophers like to think of ourselves as people who sit in armchairs and we reason about the world independently um, if anything else, you know, that somehow we float above considerations of culture and society and because we're just engaged in this process of strict reasoning. And that it's completely untrue. Like philosophy is deeply tied to culture and society. And, and looking at things like the age of discovery, when in the West, people were getting so excited about travel, you can literally see the impact that that's had on philosophy. Um, so I think that's another reason why philosophers should care about it. We talk about some philosophers famously didn't travel at all, like Socrates and Kant, uh, but others um, sort of famously traveled, like Confucius or Simone de Beauvoir, Locke and Montaigne. 
Um, and you, it feels like you pinpoint um, Francis Bacon as someone who really embraced travel and sort of took it out of the armchair philosophy mode and into this more empirical mode of, of going out and, and, and seeking these questions. So how did Francis Bacon um, connect these two uh, acts of travel and philosophy? I think it, that's exactly right. So it's hard to believe now, but historically, when people were thinking, how do we learn about the world? How do we learn about species of animals or trees? And they used to think we could do so just by sitting in armchairs and reasoning about them. Hmm. Um, so I can think about, ah, an oak tree is a kind of living creature. <laughs> what do living creatures involve? Um, and I can kind of make my way by means of reason to what the nature of an oak tree is. And Francis Bacon comes along and says, this philosophy of science is rubbish. Um, what we should be doing is going out into the world and observing things and experimenting on them. And, and this was a really revolutionary idea. So Bacon offers a really detailed new philosophy of science. And for him, going out into the world is all about travel. I mean, he, so he's writing in the late 16th century. The age of discovery has got going by now. But people are getting really excited about the tales that merchants and sailors are bringing back from overseas. And, and Bacon is thinking, this is the way that you learn about the world and by seeing what you find when you travel through it. He even argued that this process is biblically prophesized. So he finds various passages in the Bible that he believes links together um, travel and the coming apocalypse. Hmm. Um, and he thinks that if we travel enough, we'll gain enough new knowledge um, that God will eventually instigate the apocalypse and, and the eventual renewal of the world. Well, I would imagine that Bacon had some fact-checking issues because there's a time when travel literature said, oh yeah, it rains mice in Iceland, you know, or <laughs> in Ethiopia, there's men who have one foot and they hop around and it shades them from the sun when they're not hopping around. So, um, and I think you, you bring in Locke also in, the, in this idea of sort of um, synthesizing, you know, travel accounts as a way of learning about the world. But then there's the fact that travel accounts are often not accurate at all. Uh, and, and so how did they wrestle with this? Um, so, yes, this was a big problem. Um, travel writing before the 16th century was as much fiction as it was fact. Um, and so Bacon and the people that came after him, um, a big group of philosophers and scientists, um, they began issuing rules for how travel writing should be produced. Mm. Um, and they said things like, Preferably, travel reports should be authored by sensible people, <laughs> um, not just random people found on the street, but people with um, an upstanding reputation, that they should be written in a clear, factual style of writing, and, and preferably that they should be based on things that were repeatable. And, you know, so if you send home a report about rains of mice, you should be able to detail exactly where the rains of mice were happening and what kind of day it was so that other people could return to that distant place and see for themselves whether 
mice were indeed raining from the sky. It had a profound impact on the nature of travel writing. But so the kind of thing, the style of travel writing that you see in James Cook or Charles Darwin, it very much is the kind that they instigated back then. Yeah, you, you wonder, I know that travel writing was a really popular genre and it influenced the novel. And so I wonder if audiences were disappointed to not have raining mice. Do you, do, do you know how the, the scientists were received once they started writing about travel in, in like Darwin style? <laughs> That's a good question. Whether or not audiences were disappointed yeah. in this style, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly, I mean, travel writing was devoured by the public at home. Yeah, and people really wanted to learn about what was going on. And what you find is novelists, so people like Daniel Defoe with his book Robinson Crusoe, and he's really copying this kind of objective, science style of travel writing, which is one reason why so many people thought Robinson Crusoe was a true factual account. Yeah, and people really begin to play with the genre. Yeah, and in fact, you bring in Margaret Cavendish, whose work I wasn't previously familiar with, who sort of writes a science fiction-y book called Blazing World about the Poles. And so what can you tell us about her work and how speculative fiction, in a way, is a form of travel writing? Yeah, so Cavendish is an interesting character. So she's this 17th century British philosopher, and and she writes books of philosophy, but she also writes fiction. And and I think that what she does when she writes fiction is often presents us with really involved thought experiments. Um, So thought experiments are scenarios that you can run in your head. So there's a long history of travel writing in the form of thought experiments. Um, It really goes back to classical times, but famous examples include things like Thomas More's Utopia. Um, He's describing a far-off society with a view to asking us to think through um, what would society be like if things were, were other than they are right now. Um, And Cavendish uses the travel writing genre to do exactly the same thing. So she's already written a philosophy book arguing against parts of Bacon's new philosophy of science. Um, And she then writes this sci-fi novel, Blazing World, um, which is a piece of fictional travel writing that also functions as a thought experiment where she argues if we were to really follow through on parts of Bacon's philosophy of science, um, things are going to go horribly wrong. And and what she really takes issue with is Bacon's seeming view that science should just be about generating knowledge. Um, And Cavendish says, that's not right. Science should be about improving the lives of people, of mankind. And and that's exactly the same debate you can see played out today when people say, well, what's the point of funding enormous particle colliders? Aren't we better off funding, you know, advances into medicine and so on? Shouldn't science be for the benefit of people rather than just for knowledge generation? Um, So she uses this travel writing as a thought experiment to ask us to think through these ideas. One thing that's remarkable about Cavendish is that 
she was writing at a time when not many women were writing about travel, um, speculatively or otherwise. Um, yeah. You talk a little bit about this. Has has um, has travel and travel writing um, been gendered, and is this some? Is it just an extension of the way that things are gendered at home, or is there something that that's especially um, a man's world about travel and travel writing? Good. Yes. So travel and travel writing has definitely been gendered. Um, Like like other things have been, um, but I think travel is is especially so. So there's quite a lot of work that's been done in philosophy on how an idea or a concept can come to be associated with a particular gender. So pinkness is a really obvious example. We tend to associate pinkness with the feminine. Um, And things become associated with a gender through through history, for example. So if you look at the history of travel and travel writing, it's almost exclusively a history of men. And, you know, if you look at, if you Google lists of famous travellers, famous explorers, the vast majority of names are going to be male. And... What that has done is affect the way um, that women are perceived when they travel, and it's affected the way that the work of women's travellers has been received. So because travel has been seen as a male activity, women who undertake it are often seen to be really masculine. Um, So there are some great descriptions of Victorian lady travellers, people like Isabella Bird or Mary Kingsley, and they're frequently described as being manly. They have manly courage or a masculine mind um, or a man's heart. Um, And this has also affected the way that their travel writing has been seen. Um, They've been seen as really exceptional. Um, And the implication is that this is only something that a manly woman will do. Um, It's not something that the average woman could do because travel is a male thing and only men are really good at it. Um, And unfortunately, we still see that today. Um, You know, various um, women travel writers have pointed to the way um, that lots of prizes for travel writing tend to go to men, um, like sort of big editorial jobs tend to go to men. Um, so it's certainly an awful lot better than it was back in Cavendish's day or back in Victorian times. Um, but the association is still hanging around. Yeah, I'm curious if you if you studied any religious travel writing because when I think of like ancient women travel writers, I think of pilgrims like uh, Igeria or Saint Helena. Um, did did that count? Um, did, does a more um, devotion oriented travel count, or do we still think of travel in terms of exploration and brawny, hairy chested adventure? <laughs> I like that. Um, so pilgrims travel writing is a really interesting one um there is definitely a perception that it's okay for women to travel if they have a kind of excuse hmm. <laughs> and then religious pilgrimage can provide such an excuse yeah, um, so there are a couple of writers i forget their names now who were traveling in the 18th and 19th centuries yeah, um, women writers who 
um, would write in their prefaces, you know, what I, the trip I'm making is a kind of pilgrimage. Huh. Um, and this was then an accepted reason for them to travel. Yeah, um, so it, absolutely, as you say, women have been traveling for a really long time. And yeah, um, it's just that somehow they're not quite allowed to be traveling for travel's sake. There has to be a sort of there has to be an excuse for their travels. Um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely perceived a bit differently, even though they've been around for centuries. Do you reckon that travel by women has changed attitudes back home? Because uh, I think you mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft, who I think was sort of activist and sort of an early feminist. Um, is there that relationship of, of women coming back from the world and and uh, affecting the home life or? The relationship between feminism and travel is a surprisingly complicated one. Hmm. So you're absolutely right. Mary Wollstonecraft, late 18th century English writer, and she's a really early feminist and she's also a traveler. She wrote this book, Traveling Around Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Um, So she definitely combines both. And she seems to see her role as a traveller, as one that is expanding the kinds of things that women can do. You know, she was travelling by herself in an era when that really just didn't happen. um, So definitely she's pioneering on both fronts, the feminism and the travel. However, Wollstonecraft, after her death, was really vilified and, and many of the obituaries that were written about her and the posthumous reviews of her work they implied that so she died young in childbirth and various scandals came out about her life afterwards about how she wasn't married to the father of her first child for example Um, and lots of people began using her life as a kind of cautionary tale and in reviews of her life and her work people imply that she came a cropper because she engaged in one too many manly spheres. And it was as though by doing travel and by doing philosophy, she'd just done too many male things. And and this was why it all went wrong for her. And that if she'd acted in a more feminine way and hadn't engaged in these activities, that her life might have worked out fine. And what you see... In subsequent travel writers in the 19th century, so people like Bird and Kingsley, is that even though they are traveling and, and so in, and they're being really progressive in that way, uh, you know, you've got Kingsley marching through the swamps of Africa and you've got Bird climbing mountains all over the world. And when they come home, they are vehemently anti-feminist. Right? So in fact, they campaigned against women having the vote for example. And, and that's really surprising, I think, for them to be so progressive with regards to travel and then so anti-progressive with regards to things like feminism. And, and it seems part of the reason for that is that they were worried that if they engaged in feminism and travel, they would just be seen as too unfeminine. They were already seen as manly for traveling. They didn't also want to be seen as manly for trying to be involved in politics. I didn't know that about Isabella Bird. I know that there's different structural things about travel writing, you know, that oftentimes it portrays a masculinity that women have trouble narratively fitting into. 
uh, as the examples we've just mentioned. But then you also talk about how maps oftentimes create a narrative that isn't necessarily true, that maps can be opaque in a way. And I think you talk about uh, a philosopher, Bran Hawley, I think his name is. How do maps represent the world and how do they misrepresent the world? Yeah, so, okay. So here's a good example of where I learned quite a lot when writing this book. (laughs) So I had always thought that maps were fairly straightforward things. You know, I use roadmaps all the time. I use Google Maps. I've never really thought very much about them. And and then as soon as I began getting into the philosophy of maps, so people like Brian Harley was a real pioneer in the 80s, I discovered that that's not the case at all, that what maps do is not so much represent parts of the planet Earth. Instead, they convey the information that the map maker wants them to convey. Um, And these decisions are not always conscious, they might be unconscious, but what the map maker wants to convey can be all kinds of things that are actually perhaps a bit worrying. So things like um, what the power structures of a particular world are. So if you look at things like world maps, I think this gets really apparent. And if you Google um, like European world maps, you'll come up with a world map with Europe bang in the center. And that dates back to the likes of Mercator in the 16th and 17th century. In contrast, if you Google US world maps or Chinese world maps, world maps will come up with those places in the center of the map. Um, And what that's doing is telling you what's important from the perspective of the map maker. Similarly, the stuff that is included on a map and what's left off um, says an awful lot about um, sort of power structures in a society. Um, So this might be things like including churches, but not including schools, um, or it might be even more sinister, at which borders you include on a map. Um, So there are some really strange things that you can find on Google Maps today where disputed territories, the borders are drawn differently depending on where in the world you access the maps from. Mm. And stuff like that uh, makes these maps really opaque. They're no longer these kind of transparent, straightforward representations of the earth. They're actually these quite carefully layered packets of information that you have to unpick if you're trying to look at them closely. Yeah, I remember the first time I questioned this was when I was a teenager, I think, and I saw an Australian map that depicted the world which was to me upside down. It put um, Australia at the top of the world. And then I realized, well, wait a second. Well, why not put that at the top of the world? Um, so yeah. in this in this day of digital maps, where oftentimes a server in Russia will give you a different Google map than a, than a server in you know Mexico or Pakistan, are maps more objective or is there always going to be a power dynamic or a subjectivity to maps? I think they're always going to be it's subjective for sure. I really, really do. Um, I think it, 
I, of course, <laughs> it's perfectly possible to produce maps that lack sinister power dynamics. Um, so I could probably make you a map of, I don't know, gin distilleries all over Scotland. Mm. <laughs> and that's not going to be it's sort of sinister in the way that a map with moving borders might be. Um, but it's absolutely, I think, that maps convey what people want them to convey. And as long as people are in the picture, there's going to be this subjective perspective element involved. One subjectivity that you talk about in the book that I found interesting is the idea of travel and philosophy mixing to sort of transform our idea of what mountains represent. There was a time when you look at the the travel literature and mountains are sort of considered dangerous and ugly, and then they sort of transform into something beautiful and more sublime. Um, what happened here and why why were mountains considered dangerous and ugly? And then why did they transform into something a little bit more divine? So it's this really strange phenomenon. I, I think that we're really used to thinking of mountains as being kind of beautiful things. Um, but yeah, as soon as you begin looking at um, sort of pre-mid 17th century descriptions of mountains, they're described as uh, like being boils upon the earth, the ugly protuberances of nature. And like people really, really hated them. They were seen to be sort of marring the surface of God's creation. And, and then, as you say, you get this transformation towards thinking of them as being um, beautiful, divine. They're described as cathedrals to God on the earth. And one of the things that made this change actually comes from philosophy and it comes from a new theory of space um, that was started by a 17th century guy called Henry Moore working at Cambridge and Henry Moore is asking what is space and time and he comes up with an answer that no one's ever come up with before but he's running various thought experiments in his head so he's asking things like, if I sit in my armchair and I imagine deleting the contents of the material world, so I imagine getting rid of my desk and the chair and the city of Cambridge and the planet Earth and all the stars, is anything left behind? And his answer is, yes, space is left behind. And more muses on this for several years and eventually reaches the conclusion that if space is independent of the created world, then space must be deeply connected to God. And space seems to be um, infinite and necessary. You can't get rid of it no matter what you do, that you can never delete space from your thought. Um, and so he reaches the conclusion that space must be God's presence in the universe. And so space is God's immensity, as he puts it. And this brand new theory of space became super popular. It's picked up by Isaac Newton, um, who and Isaac Newton, obviously, huge physicist, huge philosopher. And from Newton, it just works its way into poetry and literature. And, and then big open spaces like mountains and seascapes are suddenly associated with God as well. Is it fair to say that the rise of seaside tourism and mountaineering 
have a philosophical origin or are they just something that, that came about with industrialization in the modern world? I would never want to say philosophy is the only cause of mountaineering and seaside tourism, but I definitely think it's a really big factor. I really do. Um, the romantic um, literature that came off the back of these new philosophical ideas um, was just so big. And you have all these travel writers, you know, they're reading the, the romantics. Um, and I definitely think that provided a new way for them to see the world, to see the things that they were looking at. Well, you talk a bit about the difference between beauty and the sublime, uh, which probably came out of this time of thought. And I'm, I'm guessing that maybe some of my listeners don't exactly know what the sublime is, I think in part because how we use the word sublime has changed over time. So how would you define sublime in its historical and its modern sense? And how does it differ from something like beauty? So... When we look at something beautiful, we all have a sense of what that means. It's kind of, you know, a beautiful flower, a beautiful sunset. Um, it's aesthetically pleasing to us. Um, in contrast, the philosophical meaning of the word sublime is something that generates a feeling of pleasurable terror. So maybe when you're outside in a thunderstorm and there's lightning coming down all around you, um, or you're standing at the very edge of a precipice looking out over a waterfall, um, you're scared, but you're not so close to these things that you're really deeply scared. There's a kind of pleasurable terror um, in standing that close to the waterfall in watching the storm come down. Um, and in the 18th century, Irish philosopher Edmund Burke argued that the sublime is a distinct kind of ascetic experience from beauty, that things can be beautiful or sublime or both, but that these two categories are quite different. And, and Burke definitely fed into people wanting to travel to mountains and that people often then saw could be sources of the sublime. You can imagine big craggy cliffs and so on, and the people are looking at these things, the kinds of scenery that you get in Frankenstein, lots of that seems to be sublime. You know, there's crashing waterfalls and thunderstorms going on, and that seems to be a good a good kind of example of how the sublime goes. And today, I think some people use the word sublime in that historical sense, yeah, um, but it definitely has changed a bit. So I think other times people just use the word sublime to mean very pleasurable. You know, so they might say, oh, that glass of wine was sublime. Um, but yeah, but I think it just depends on the meaning shift over time. Is the sublime something that comes purely out of natural phenomenon? Or is it something that can come out of like a festival or a man-made monument or something? Good. So I think that question is up for debate, actually. So some people have argued that like skyscrapers can be sublime, that standing underneath a skyscraper, you might have this sense of this enormous structure that could come down on you. That other people say, oh, they're just not scary enough <laughs> in, the, in the right way. Um, another candidate for a man-made sublime might be some of the dark tourism that you're getting to places like Chernobyl, 
is in you are standing close but hopefully not too close to the scene of a nuclear disaster and, and maybe that's enough to remind you of the kind of awesome destructive power that people have managed to create so something like that might count as sublime for what it's worth I'm not sure and um, I haven't I haven't visited places like that and um, I don't have a good sense of I don't have a good sense of how that would make me feel and you have an interesting um analogy uh, about the the um the sublime in that an avalanche viewed from a chalet wherein you're not in danger from the avalanche it can be sublime but if you're skiing down the mountain and the avalanche is coming after you it's not really sublime. I, I would imagine similarly, if you experienced Chernobyl during the meltdown, it would not be yes. sublime, but there's sort of an effect of Chernobyl can, you know, border the sublime uh, years later. Uh, yes. Does that seem yeah. fair? It, yes, it, absolutely. Yeah, no, to be clear, being at the event itself would not be sublime. Right. <laughs> but being at it from a distance of 20 years might be. You bring in some American philosophers, uh, specifically Emerson and Thoreau, um, famous 19th century American thinkers, in the context of wilderness. Uh, and I'm guessing maybe they were contemporary with some of this thinking, or maybe shortly after some of this thinking, wherein mountains were no longer dangerous things and were now things of beauty. What philosophical attitudes did they take to nature and bring out of nature? So Emerson was really one of the very first philosophers to begin um, to begin praising nature um, and the joys of being alone in nature. And so he publishes these books where he's sort of wandering through fields and woodland um, and he's talking about how this allows you to be in touch with yourself, but also with the natural world. And, and that this is really good for our souls, like literally good for our souls, that it can put us in touch with God. Theroux was a little bit younger than Emerson, although the two men became friends. And, and Theroux famously built this cabin in the woods next to Walden Pond that lived there for a while and wrote a book about it called Walden. And Theroux argues for many of the same things, that being alone in wilderness helps to connect us to the world. And, and he produces these really beautiful passages of nature writing where he's gazing at the sunlight coming through the trees or gazing at ice forming on the surface of water. The difference between Theroux and Emerson is that for Emerson, nature is somehow a representation of God. It, whereas for Theroux, he doesn't think nature is a representation of anything. He thinks nature is a thing in itself. Um, so nature isn't a representation of the divine. If anything, it is the divine. Um, you might think that Theroux is just more pagan than Emerson. Um, Emerson is worshipping a Christian god who can make himself felt through nature, whereas Theroux is really just worshipping nature. Um, and Theroux seems to prize the the more the, the sort of the rougher bits of wilderness in a way that Emerson doesn't. So Emerson kind of confines himself to fields and woodlands, whereas Theroux it wants to climb mountains and and feel 
feel their power in a kind of ah in a he's not interested just in gentle nature he's interested in how harsh and how inhuman nature can be could this difference be because one man strolled in nature and the other man lived in it for a while <laughs> yes i think you might well make that case yeah, yeah. Uh, well, both men sort of had an influence on later wildlife conservation, but you also bring up cabin porn. Um, and so how would you define cabin porn and what does it have to do with philosophy? <laughs> Good. <laughs> so um, if you're feeling very brave, you can type cabin porn into Google Images, possibly with safe search enabled. You're feeling. Um, and the kinds of pictures that will come up are of beautiful log cabins perched on the edges of mountains or lakes. Um, they generally, they're made of wood, they're terribly rustic, um, but they look really cosy. You know, you can see that there are like fires burning inside. Um, and the idea is that, uh, that people just lust after living in these cabins. Um, that there's something about going back to nature, living a simpler life, living this kind of like homely, rustic dream. Um, and all of this is is tied up in this phenomenon known as cabin porn. Right? There's actually a book of it, um, like a book of photographs of beautiful cabins. And, and this phenomena is frequently traced back to Theroux's Walden. Um, so he builds himself this cabin in the woods, um, and it really has inspired many future wilderness travellers. Um, oddly enough, to Alaska especially, huh. um, there's quite a lot of travel writers who have talked about how they read through and then they went to Alaska to build themselves a cabin in the woods. Um, this seems to be a real dream of getting back to nature that he inspired. Yeah, and, and of course, when I think of... Um idealism and Alaska, I think of Christopher McCandless uh, from, yes. from Into the Wild. So I guess there, there can be a dark side to that. Um, and in the, in the context of the darker idealizations and generalizations of travel, you talk a little bit about doom travel and just the fact that places are changing, um, either because of cultural factors or tourism factors or even climate change factors. Uh, and so how does this come into play uh, in the context of ethics? Yeah, so places have always changed on planet Earth. That seems like a fact that's true. And, and tourist destinations have always come on and off the menu of possible places to visit. Um, you know, so just to give an example, um, a couple of years ago, uh, people couldn't visit Sri Lanka very easily because of some events that took place there. Um, but now Sri Lanka is firmly back on the tourist menu of possibilities, or at least it will be if COVID ever allows us to venture forth again. Um, what's specific to climate change is that it seems as though places are disappearing en masse because of rising temperatures, rising sea levels. 
Um, so some of the examples that are often given is things like glaciers that are melting um, and then various glacier national parks simply may not exist. Um, regions in the Arctic and the Antarctic seem to be melting and disappearing. Um, the coral reefs in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, for example, um, is being damaged by the rising sea level temperatures. And so it seems like suddenly lots of places around the world are disappearing off the map um, altogether, all at the same time. And this has prompted a phenomena that's been known as last chance to see travel or doom tourism, where tourists are rushing to visit these places before they're gone, like while they're still here. Um, and the issue that got me especially interested in this is how ethical it is to make those kinds of trips. So on the one hand, I don't think there's anything obviously unethical about it. If you think about um, someone saying to you, oh, there's a rainbow in the sky and you rush outside to see it before it disappears, that seems fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The issue with last chance to see tourism is that the very act of visiting these places, it hastens their demise. So in the case of visiting the Great Barrier Reef, um, tourists notoriously can damage it, sometimes in obvious ways by kicking bits of the reef as they swim past, but also in less obvious ways, um, you know, traces of sun cream come off into the water um, or traces of oil from the motorboats um, damage the reef. Um, and the same with visiting the Arctic and the Antarctic, the carbon footprint that you have to expend to get there is part of what's fueling the climate change in the first place. And, and so now it starts to seem a lot less ethical to be visiting these places. So the question is, is there any way that we can is there any way that we can manage this? I mean, should we simply conclude it's really just unethical to visit doomed? places we should stop visiting them altogether um, and give them a chance to recover it or is there ways that we can visit them that's going to offset the damage how can it offset the damage is it just being a witness to these places and bringing that knowledge home and and advocating for them how how might that damage be offset by people who travel to these places i think that this idea of being an ambassador to these endangered places, I think it can work. Um, so that has really been touted in the case of Antarctica, that they want people who visit the continent to really understand the landmass that they're visiting, um, to become educated about it and to go home and, and tell their friends and family, look, this place is so beautiful and important but it's also really vulnerable and fragile and um, you know we shouldn't uh, we should keep it as a place reserved for science say and um, and we should only visit it uh, in uh, you know sort of in ships that aren't going to damage it too much and um, that people can hopefully persuade others of how important these places are to protect and um, the worry is that this just isn't enough, that this 
notion of an ambassador doesn't work very well. Um, and then we look at things like carbon offsetting schemes. You know, if you take this long plane flight to visit it, um, what can you do to offset your carbon footprint? All paying into schemes that are planting trees and so on might be one way of doing it. I, but frankly, I feel quite conflicted about all of this. I'm not sure that any of these schemes work perfectly. I definitely think it's good to do your research before you visit, to travel in the most responsible way that you can. But, um, but it, I do, I am afraid that eventually the conclusion we're going to have to come to is that they need to be left off the map for a while. One thing that occurs to me when we talk about the effect of tourism on places, environmentally and otherwise, is that at least pre-COVID, and it'll be interesting to see what happens post-COVID, it's not just Western tourists who are showing up in places. Oftentimes, it's Asian tourists. Specifically, uh, there's been a big boom in, in Chinese tourism. And so I'm just wondering, is there... Given this global context in which tourism is happening, do you have a, is there a sequel here um, where you can study uh, philosophies from other cultures and tie those into travel? Or do you think this is a one-off uh, travel philosophy book for you? For me personally, it's going to be a one-off. I, simply because it, I am a historian of Western philosophy. Um, it's becoming an expert in Chinese or African philosophy mm. would take a good another 10 years of my life. Right, right. <laughs> I, I have no doubt whatsoever um, that travel has also been a big topic in other world philosophies. And I really hope other people write the book so I can read them. <laughs> that so, would bring great joy. So if anybody out there listening has an, has an interest in African or Asian uh, travel philosophy, there's a, there's a book market for you out there. You have at least two people who will read that. Um, <laughs> Definitely. I think so too. Yeah. As we, as we near the top of the hour here, I'm curious um, just about a take home for people who are listening. Can philosophy make us better travelers? Can it make us more mindful travelers? How as individuals can we synthesize um, uh, this philosophical context as individual travelers? I think that the more you know about any particular thing, the, um, the more mindful you can be when you do it. it so yes, I definitely think the thinking about it, um, the philosophy of travel can, it can change the way that you travel. For example, the emphasis that philosophers like Descartes and Montaigne put on the importance of putting yourself in touch with with the unfamiliar, with the other, and how this is really good for our minds, that it helps us that broaden our souls. And I think that that can affect decisions we make when we travel, when we decide, oh, do we want to stay in this more Western-style hotel or do we want to stay in the homestay and put ourselves in contact even more with unfamiliar peoples and cultures um, and I think that stuff is really good for us. Yeah, I definitely think it can help us travel more mindfully. 
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Emily Thomas's book, The Meaning of Travel, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.